Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. I am the host of a Minor Detail Radio. You can find us on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail and on the web at aminordetail.com. Tonight, I have the distinct pleasure of having Maryland Democratic gubernatorial candidate Krishante Vignaraja, and we pre-recorded an interview earlier this afternoon, and tonight I'm going to go ahead and play that interview, and it takes about an hour or so. So here is my interview with gubernatorial candidate Krishante Vignaraja. Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is a pre-recorded edition of a minor detail radio. I have uh, the distinct pleasure today to have Krishante Vignaraja, otherwise otherwise known as Krish. She's running for governor of Maryland, and out of the seven candidates who are running for the governor of Maryland, she is clearly different from everybody else in that she is a, a female, she's a rock star, and she's somebody who is just traveling all over the state of Maryland, introducing herself to voters, has been everywhere, all over the place, and I'm really lucky today to have her. And she's uh, she's at a Starbucks at an undisclosed yeah. location. <laughs> and I apologize. It's one of those things where there is a uh, brunch um, that I can't say ran over. I tend to uh, linger just because there's so many people who are always so excited to talk um, about the issues, and so... Uh, I am constantly um, kind of on the go and running a little bit behind, so I apologize. Um, but, Brian, delighted to uh, be here with you, and thank you for finding the time to talk to me. No, well, I appreciate it. And you guys are, you, that is, the candidates and gals, you, you're you're busy traveling all yeah. over the state of Maryland. And so I'm sure you're, you're visiting places that um, may be new. You're making new friends along the trail. And there's a lot of interesting places. And I saw the other evening, uh, maybe on Wednesday night, you were back in my hometown of Hagerstown for the United Democrats Forum uh, they had with yeah. some of the congressional candidates. And I saw that you were you were featured up there. That had to be interesting. And they're, they're a good bunch of Democrats up that way. Yeah, and it was great because I will tell you that, you know, for me, um, I think we have learned time and time again that we can't just take – uh, you know, focus on the three counties in Baltimore City. Um, and it was a fantastic forum where all the congressional candidates, by and large, had uh, arrived and, and attended, and it was a great conversation. Um, I will be honest, I was a little surprised that I was the only gubernatorial candidate who was there, um, because I think we have learned from 2014, and heck, 90% of it is showing up. Um, but it was a great conversation, fantastic turnout, um, I will tell you that I was, uh, you know, I promised my husband I wouldn't stop by Rick's Cafe without him um, because this has become a, uh, a tradition of ours. But, um, you know, we got a chance to meet with a lot of folks who are so mobilized, which is really heartening. It gets um, me very excited about not just June, but November as well. Well, I tell you what, Rick's Cafe has become the new Hagerstown hotspot. <laughs> and I, I personally know Rick the, uh, the oh, owner. Nice. Yeah. Okay. It's a great place to. And and by the way, if any, it, when you're listening to this, so candidates, including you, Krish, if you're interested in hosting a fundraiser, I'm sure Rick would be happy to do that. Um, okay. It's a. So it's it's one of those places in Hagerstown that if if you look on TripAdvisor or any of the other sites like Yelp, you're going to find that it it has some of the best food. And Hagerstown is 
is certainly a place that is not lacking good food, but I got to tell you, if you go there, ask for Rick. He's one of the nicest guys in the business. He'll come over, stop by your table, tell you some stories about when he was in California and how he started his cafe. But nonetheless, we can talk all day about how good the food is, and I agree with, <laughs> yeah. with Colin. He is He's right on. Nonetheless, so you, you jumped into this race, and a little bit of background about how you got in. It's kind of interesting how both of our narratives, in, in somewhat in a ironic way, Chris, they intersect because I remember seeing you for the first time, and mm-hmm. I, I did not... I had not heard about you um, until I met you last year when mm-hmm. you were several months into your pregnancy yeah. and you were, you were getting ready to pop. And um, I just, <laughs> I remember I said, who is this, you know, who is this woman who is, you know, she's, she's you know, several months pregnant and she's yeah. the keynote speaker at the Western Maryland Democratic Summit. And this was up in Allegheny County at um, the the golf course there, um, mm-hmm. Rocky Gap, and you had been invited to make the keynote address, and we ran in and had a very pleasant conversation. And the next yeah. day, you blew the room away. I, I we, we were all sitting there <laughs> like, we have no idea who she is, but good lord, this is a, one heck of a speech. And so, I, I you know, after that, a, a few months had had passed by. And there was a luncheon, I believe, in July of 2017. And I, Kim and I were up at the airport inn in North Hagerstown, which is mm-hmm. near nearing the airport. And I said to I said to Kim, "Oh, look, there's Chris." And there you had stood up and you said, "Well, I'm thinking about running for governor of Maryland." I went, "Oh my gosh, she's thinking about running for governor of Maryland." Then I walked over. We had a, a very brief interaction, and, and and you said, "Well, I'm not ready to." to go with it live yet, but yes, I'm, I'm considering it. Um, and my outlet, a minor detail.com was very fortunate enough to, to actually first break the story. And, and Chris, I must apologize to you if I prematurely broke that before you were ready, but my, my due diligence. No, not at all. Yeah, no, no. no and I, I will tell you, you know, for me, um, it was obviously a life changing decision and the only reason I was hesitating, honestly, was because, um, you know, I'm obviously a new mom, too. And at that time, it was literally the first event I had gone to after a lot of my daughter's birth. And people had been so encouraging um, of me before and after uh, she was born. Um, but it is one of those things where you're obviously incredibly thoughtful about is it the right time? Is it the right decision for our family? Is it the mom that I want to be to Alana? And as I looked at each of those questions, I realized the answer was yes. Um, And so (laughs) I, uh, it was, it was delightful to kind of um, have you there when um, actually Denise Riley, um, who I think was very excited as well, um, had just said, you know, Chris is running for governor. I said, no, 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 Denise, not quite. Um, you know, Denise and I, and I, I definitely talked about it a little bit, um, but it was very early, and I hadn't made the decision yet. Well, that was it was fun nonetheless. So you then, um, I think the story came out in mid-August that yes, indeed, you were you were you had decided to to launch a bid to run for governor. But first, it, it's not necessarily that. Um, you know, and I, I want to say this that Maryland on, and you point this out on your website, ChristopherMaryland.com, and I'm looking at on my, I'm looking at that site on my screen now, and a photograph of uh, your mom and dad, and you and your brother standing next to uh, 
um, an old station wagon. It looks like a little greenish, and uh, it's on your uh, website on the Meet Krish part. But I, I want to say that it's what, what's so fascinating is that you're the only woman that who is running for governor in a state that has no female elected representatives at the federal level, and we're we're lacking in that department, Krish. And I know that gender does not just automatically qualify someone to run for governor or for any office that matter or whatever. I mean, we're running based on your qualifications, your experience, your leadership, but it is it it would be remiss of us not to point out that why in the heck aren't there women candidates that have stepped up or rather have not been able to to get their footing in Maryland politics. What the last female yeah. congressman that we had was Connie Morella. I believe mm-hmm. in 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 Maryland. So mm-hmm. in that, and when you decided to jump in, have you? I'm sure you considered. Well, what is it about this state? You know, we're progressive, yeah. right? Yeah. We're, we're we're supposed to be this bastion of progressive ideas where things in Maryland sh- you typically happen first, and the rest of the country follows. But yet mm-hmm. we're still lacking on the female front. What what's the deal, Krish? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I have. All of the answers. I mean, I do think part of it is that we are a uh, very strong democratic state um, that has a very strong um, kind of party. Uh, Some people would describe that as a machine or the establishment. And I do think sometimes that means that um, there is this process of having to kind of wait your turn or join the queue. And, you know, every now and again, I, of course, get the question, well, why governor? Um, Why not some lower office? And, look, I'm not saying that's a gendered question. I do think it's a very Maryland question. And, unfortunately, I do think there are some structural barriers that exist, um, you know, whether it is uh, financial um, in in the sense of fundraising. Um, Look, I I don't have a network of deep pockets um, or a lot of special interests, you know, developers, et cetera, who are – uh, strong backers. Um, our campaign is very much a grassroots campaign. When you think about the fact that only 20% of political donations come from women, you realize one of the high hurdles that we face. And so I do think that um, I think those two pieces are a big part of it. But I also think it's um, you know the struggle that personally many of us um, have, um, as, as you referenced, in terms of making the decision to run. Um, it was one that I was incredibly thoughtful about because I, I'm not running to, to be someone. I'm running to do something about the issues that I care about. And I'm running because I'm worried that all of our children, um, including my baby daughter, will not have the same opportunities that I had growing up in Maryland. Um, you know, so my family escaped a, a country that was on the brink of civil war when I was nine months, and they moved to Maryland. Um, and we had very little in the sense that my parents came to this country with no jobs, um, about $200 in their pockets. But I was blessed to grow up in Maryland at a time when we led the nation in job creation, school performance, um, and pioneered in many ways the environmental conversation. Um, And today a lot of that has changed. Larry Hogan has refused to speak out, not just um, against Donald Trump, but also what's happening in Maryland. Um, You know, our economy is, is flatlining as wages stagnate even while neighbors uh, to the north uh, like Delaware or you know to the south like Virginia prosper. Um, many of our schools are failing. 
um, and they remain woefully underfunded as Hogan focuses on the priorities of the rich and our Chesapeake Bay, um, which I was, you know, um, visiting and enjoying just yesterday, finds itself in a horrendous condition. Um, And that's why my campaign um, has been focusing on a new generation of ideas and policies to revitalize our economy, to make it inclusive for everyone, to deliver on an exceptional education to all of our children, knowing that that was my life story, and to make Maryland's environment the pride and joy for generations to come. You mentioned, you talked about your parents, and that's one of the pieces of your narrative that I would um, like to to talk to you about. And you said you escaped Sri Lanka when the country was on the brink of the Civil War. Your parents located here in the States, and as you said, they had no jobs, um, and they had $200 in their pocket. You grew up in Baltimore City, and in fact, your campaign kickoff back in September, last September, was at the apartment complex, which was very touching, by the way, where you grew up. I actually had a chance to, I had to meet, I, I met your mom and dad, and they're just truly wonderful, um, interesting, educated, um, and delightful people. And so I, I know how special that had to be when you look back and you said, you know, I went to Baltimore. I went to Baltimore City. Listen to me, my Maryland accent coming up. Baltimore. Um, he went to Baltimore public schools, and you, you know your parents here as as new immigrants in our country, they forged their own path. This is truly, truly indicative of the American dream, and that's what I look at your narrative, and that's why it's so special. And I see that. I see that when you, you know, I'm sure when when your daughter. Uh, becomes of age to to explain just what that means to her and her family, and that's that 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 to me really shows um, what our country is all about. When I met your parents, and I can see how proud they are of you and your brother, yeah. who I should also mention, who's running for um, he's running for is it for state's attorney in Baltimore state's City? Attorney, yep, in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. Yep. So talk about that. What was it like yeah. growing up with immigrant parents, going to Baltimore? County Public Schools. Uh, you went to Woodlawn High School, and uh, what was what was that like growing up there? Yeah, I mean, and this is where it's interesting because obviously, um, so we grew up right on the Baltimore County side of the Baltimore County city line, and you realize that whether it's you know Baltimore or Hagerstown or Cumberland or Salisbury or anywhere in between. Families today are still facing the struggles that we faced. Um, so I had, you know, the, the good fortune of growing up uh, with two loving parents. Um, and in some ways, we felt very rich, though we were obviously uh, poor, um, to be totally candid. And the issues that we talk about today are still the issues that we dealt with back then. Um, you know, when my parents came, uh, they had no money for, you know, a car or anything like that. So when we talk about the transportation issue, it is an issue near and dear to my heart because I know if my dad hadn't been able to hop on a bus, he would, uh, drive, he would walk up to Route 40 and he would take the bus to Edmonton High. And if he didn't have that option of public transit, you'd have a family of four instead of being on, you know, his one teacher income, we would have been on welfare. Um, And likewise, you know, we grew up in this basement apartment in Edmonton Heights, in the St. Agnes apartment, and we had neighbors who were like family to us. And so when 
my parents had to run an errand, et cetera. They couldn't, they couldn't afford uh, childcare. So they would leave us with neighbors who were aunts and uncles. And that's the Maryland that I grew up in that, you know, is described as, the, as America in miniature that embraces its diversity at a time when, you know, you got a president who attacks immigrants, who's xenophobic in a way that I think is un-American. And when uh, Attorney General Sessions and um, Nielsen were in Baltimore, frankly, targeting immigrants, you had Governor Hogan um, sit silent. And likewise, you know, when um, we talk about the, the struggle that families are still facing today, I realize that no one's out there advocating for them in the way that I want to see us advocating for working families. And that's why um, it was really important for me to kick off my campaign there because that's who I am. Um, That's who I'm fighting for. And I just think that we need to finally have one of us who's fighting for all of us. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, reading your website, one of the, uh, the, the unique stories that you tell is that when you were in elementary school, you went door knocking uh, with your mom in support of former Senator Barbara Mikulski when she mm-hmm. won her first race. And then when in college you worked for, um, uh, you served as a, I believe you worked for Senator Sarbanes um, from, from Maryland as yep. well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you graduated from Woodlawn High School, I believe you were the valedictorian, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And yep. after graduating from from Woodlawn, uh, you went on to Yale, um, mm-hmm. which um, everybody should know what Yale University. Is. <laughs> um, you you uh, you know you went um, you, you got a degree in um, you, you, political science and a BS. Or that is rather a master's degree in, in poli sci, and then a master's to, uh, or BS in molecular cellular and developmental bi- biology, graduating magna cum laude. Uh, you were a Marshall Scholar at Oxford, which is a Rhodes Scholar, and uh, then you returned to Yale to uh, earn your law degree, and you served on the Yale Law Journal. And many famous people that I know have gone on to Yale Law School, including former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And she was uh, a very uh, famous alumni, as well as uh, George W. Bush, I believe, and John Kerry, and several people. I, uh, Chris, yeah. I when I visited New Haven, Connecticut, um, mm-hmm. I love I love New England. And when I when we visited Kim and I visited Yale University, we actually love the campus. It's beautiful. We were there um, in the springtime, and it's just so quaint yeah. and it's so emblematic of New England. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about you know, in, back in college. You know, we were all somewhat different back at that time. But um, when you were in college, did you have an, a yearning uh, to at that time to, to run for public office, or did you have any thoughts of you know entering the public service at that time? Yeah, um, absolutely not. To be honest with you, when I first started there, I had been really focused on um, issues of health. And for me, it was thinking about how do we better treat disease? Um, how do we have a healthcare system that doesn't work just for a few, but for, for all of us, um, you know? And I was, as a result, um, I studied molecular, molecular biology, um, but also did uh, my master's in political science while I was in college. For me, you know, look, I, I uh, had the honor 
um, an opportunity of a lifetime to go to a great school that didn't raise kids just to, you know, graduate college, but to come out and want to do something um, to, to help uh, kind of better the world uh, we had benefited from. And so I study those issues um, thinking that, you know, I, want, I knew I wanted to be a public servant in the sense that I wanted to make government work for people and not just some set of people, but for all people. And so that's kind of what I was focused on. Um, I, you know, didn't really um, work in, like, I wasn't a part of the um, Yale Dems or anything like that. Um, just because for me, it was just about how do you get the toolkit so that you can actually come out of school uh, and actually try to solve the problem. Sure. Um, so that's kind of what my focus was on. Um, you know, as you mentioned, obviously, me and, my, me and my brother are both running for office. And so sometimes people say, oh, so you must be, you know, the kids of, of politicians. And I'm like, furthest, <laughs> furthest from it. Um, you know, we're the kids of public school teachers. And what my parents did ingrain in me was this commitment to public service, um, knowing that, look, we could have either uh, remained um, in a country that was torn apart by a civil war, or the alternative was my parents actually had their bags packed to move to Nigeria um, and to actually northern Nigeria, where 276 girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram um, just because they were in a classroom trying to get an education. And so I have for my entire life counted my good fortune, knowing that my life could have turned out in a very, very different way. Um, and so uh, for me, it's, you know, kind of paying it forward. Well, is the the daughter of immigrants, uh, your life turned out in a way that is just absolutely remarkable. You had worked at uh, McKinsey and Company, you where you consulted for Fortune 100 companies. You practiced law at Jenner and Block in Washington, D.C., one of the very well-known law firms. Uh, you uh, clerked for Chief Judge Michael Bowden at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, and you taught at Georgetown University as an adjunct. And so doing all of that, it looks like when you, you reached this pivotal moment in your career where you had the opportunity to serve our former, our former First Lady Michelle Obama um, as her policy director, and there in the White House, you led the First Lady's signature Let Girls Learn initiative. And we're, I want to talk about that, but preceding that, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, you, you mentioned the name Donald Trump, and it seems like that Donald Trump um, – for, for many of his failings, has done something um, so inspiring in, in that it has gotten people off the couch and invested into politics in a way that I've never quite seen before in my life. And I look at our country today, and I think this president has, based on all of his um, truly horrible character flaws, and we, there's too many to list on this show, um, that he has inspired people to say this is not the United States of America – of our parents, of of present, and this is we want America to look the opposite of Donald Trump and his supporters, and that's why I think people are coming out of the woodwork, especially women, to run for public office, and that brings me hope. And uh, somebody else who brought so much, I, I would say, gravitas um, and class to the office was the Obamas. I I think every day I wish. President Obama was still the president. 
Um, and uh, there's a policy disagreements that I've had with him, but I can tell you that there was a real level of class there. There was somebody who believed from his, uh, from my perspective, his heart and soul that his duty was to serve, and he truly believed in people. And it, it, it's just it was so different then. There was so much integrity that he brought to the office. There wasn't scandal. There wasn't something that was breaking every hour that made us embarrassed as Americans. You know, we weren't overwrought with, you know, right now it looks like our country is being overrun by a, a D-rate former television celebrity who has no respect for our democratic norms and our constitution, um, among other things. And Chris, I, I just had to be an absolutely amazing experience to to work for the Obama administration. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was the honor of a lifetime um, just because I, I can't think of a couple that brought more professionalism, dignity, passion, uh, but also pragmatism um, to putting forth a progressive agenda and then actually getting things done. Um, and, you know, there was a part of me that worried as people um, criticized. Uh, time and time again, especially in kind of, you know, the, the second term um, where they felt like he was more academic than, you know, a president. And I, you know, I'm not saying that that was racist or, you know, or whatnot, but I, I do think it wasn't um, fully founded in fact. And what was, I think, so heartening was um, he got the rightful praise um, and respect, especially in that last year while we were in the White House, people knew who was going to be his successor. And as you said, I think a lot of what we've seen in the last year has been un-American. And what really disappointed me was when I served as Michelle Obama's policy director, the mandate we got was very clear, which was work on issues of critical importance that are not getting the attention that they deserve, which is why we had four initiatives. Um, uh, two were education-focused. The Let Girls Learn, which was about getting more of our girls to complete their, uh, to, um, you know, their middle and high school education. Um, Retire, which was about getting more of our kids to complete, um, to go into and complete their two and four year college education. Uh, joining Forces, which was about supporting veterans and their families. And then Let's Move, perhaps the most popular and probably the funnest of the right. uh, um, initiatives, which was really focused on. Uh, raising our kids with healthier, more active lifestyles. And it was such an amazing experience because I had, um, you know, two bosses who knew exactly how to break through all of the noise. And I mean that both in the sense of, you know, just the political infighting, but also in the fact that, you know, families, uh, people are busy these days. And in some ways we're competing against, you know, what did the Kardashians do or, you know, whatever um, reality show or, you know, how do you message something in, you know, back then 140 characters. And would I give us, and in particular, my, my old boss, Michelle Obama, credit for, was she figured out a way to make sure that we were having impact on those issues, right? But also in a way that people understood what we were doing, um, and so they wanted to be a part of our movement. And that's, frankly, what I've tried to do with our campaign as well, which is to help give voice to voices that haven't been heard in a very long time. Um, you know, what we are about is a grassroots movement. 
And the number of people who come up to me and say, look, I've never been involved in politics before, but I want to join your campaign, or I've never contributed to a candidate or a campaign before, but I want to contribute to yours. That's, to me, what's so exciting, because, look, we're never going to say, thank goodness, Donald Trump was elected. But to the extent that the electorate is more mobilized and energized than I've ever seen before, it's been exciting to see a lot of people who rightfully should be off the sidelines in the arena. And that is um, what I hope will be the legacy of the 2016 election. Well, it's certainly looking and shaping to be that way, even though our country is in so much turmoil. And I and I hate to say it, but I've in my lifetime, uh, uh, born in the the, the 80s, uh, and really coming into politics during my college years, early 2000s, and trying to really understand where our country was in a historical point. I've never seen it as divided, as polarized, as angry, and as um, just stalemated as we are. And um, I, I hope that I hope that it changes because if not, I look at our country and where we are under this presidency, and it's just it feels abnormal. It really does. It doesn't. It feels like we're we're losing what America means for for us. What the true spirit of this country was was set up to do for immigrants like your family, for yourself, for people who come to our country and want a better um, a better opportunity, but. But Chris, you know, I'm I'm so interested in this backstory. I I I can't imagine what it was like. I've I've been in the Oval Office. I've never been in the Oval Office before, Chris. I've been in the White House. I've done the um the standard uh, the tour. I've never actually done the West Wing side. Um, but that's that's on my list. And perhaps in a in a in a different. Uh, different presidency, uh, maybe down the line. Um, <laughs> you and me both. Right, right. So, um, but I can't imagine the gravity of you know when you first um, learned that you've 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 been hired as the policy director for Michelle Obama, the first lady of the United States. Yeah. Just the the gravity of that in that moment, and then when I'm sure those two, when when um, President and Mrs. Obama step into a room together, um, it's just, I can't imagine how surreal that that. Must <laughs> it's pretty magical. Yeah. I, I mean, think about it. You know, the two most the, the 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 people who are the leaders of our country and his spouse who step inside of a room, the weight of the presidency. Um, I if that were me and I was standing in the Oval Office, my head would be spinning. I I, just, I, I don't know what I would do. I I can't yeah. imagine what that that experience was like for anybody. And I and I I've talked to so many people who've said. Yes, I've met the president, or I've talked to military men and women, um, you know, veterans who said, you know, I've had the opportunity to shake this president's hand or this president's hand. But just, but the weight of being inside of the Oval Office or inside of the White House, inside of that West Wing, knowing that um, you are at the front seat uh, to what's happening of our country. I mean, Chris, that had to be exhilarating. Yeah, I mean, and it was. Um, you know, you sort of worry uh, about, you know, peaking before you're 40, right, in terms of your career. But I, uh, what I loved about that job, um, and, and you were reminded of it day in and day out of the, the honor you had to serve, um, you know, your, your, your country, uh, your state, um, was the fact that we viewed it as the people's house. You know, we, we rarely talk about it as the White House. Um, I think President Trump has uh, 
given um, more truth to it being the White House, if you look at some of the pictures from, uh, you know, kind of the their, their yeah, I mean, the intern picture was ridiculous. The other one that I think was a famous photo um, from the Rose Garden um, after, you know, kind of on the on the healthcare and ACA um, legislation. And, and you just realize for us, it was the exact opposite. Um, we called it the People's House. And every day I'd hear and get to meet folks who were coming in from uh, actually from all parts of Maryland, um, from all over the country, who had never, ever visited D.C. or the White House before. And there's so much history um, in, in that building that it was so important to be inclusive, to bring people in, to make them feel like we were serving them. Um, and I think that we did a, a really important job of renewing um, folks' uh, faith um, in their public service. Um, but I think part of it is, I think, as you said, what, what I have found so concerning um, in the last couple of years is the polarization of our politics. And part of why I think our message has resonated so much is because I, I'm not um, engaging in this game of uh, finger pointing and infighting and just the political bickering that I think is exactly what turns people off. Um, and doesn't want them to engage on the issues that they care about. Um, it's the same way that, you know, with this race, I'm not running at Governor Hogan. I, I don't know if he's a good guy or not. I've never met him personally. Um, but I know that he's not a good governor, and I know that he's let down a lot of folks who need him the most. And so that's where I just think there's a lot of people in this state who are looking for a voice who can represent them. And I just think that means on a range of uh, issues and ways. Um, you've obviously alluded to being the only woman in the field mm-hmm. at a time when out of 14 federal and statewide offices, there's not a single woman. Um, at a time when we realize that, you know, whether it's the fact that we come in 50th out of 50 when it comes to child care subsidies, uh, that we had a bill um, introduced nine times uh, preventing rapists from having paternity rights. And that those bills failing. Um, and we were, until this legislative session, only one of six states that allowed for that absurdity. And so that's where you realize that, you know, it's, it's what my campaign has said. Um, it's not about, uh, you know, simply representation. It's about, it's about policy. It's about the fact that we know diversity improves outcomes across the board, whether it's in government, whether it's in boardrooms, whether it's in, uh, you know, our schools courtrooms, classrooms. And so I just think that that's partly why our message is resonated. But it's also a broader issue, which is that across this state, I meet folks who feel like they have not been heard. And so my message is one that speaks to that moderate majority that frankly believes that neither party truly represents them. And that's where I just think that in this national conversation where there's a lot of people who've been um, awoken, and who are looking for a direction where we can head and work together and actually get things done, Maryland should be leading the charge on that. And that's where I just think that we have a real opportunity uh, for Maryland not just to be the front line um, in, our way, in our ability to combat what's happening um, with Trump, but in actually leading a constructive conversation. Um, and that's where, you know, for me, what I try to stress, particularly in the primaries, We've got to get someone coming out of June 
who will be able to take on Hogan on a range of issues. And that's why, you know, we're focused on uh, a very socially responsible, socially progressive message. And I want to touch upon several issues, and this goes into us now shifting into the, the, the primary question is, why is Chris running for governor, and why are you, you – know, what, what inspires someone to, to want to tackle these very tough and challenging issues and you know, lead a state that is in the backyard of Washington, D.C.? This is no small role. In fact, it's often been made the case that the Maryland governorship is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, Chris, in the country given the discretionary authority that you have in setting the – the budget, which ultimately sets the state's priorities down the mm-hmm. fiscal chain. So Maryland governor is an extraordinarily powerful individual. Um, so, and I want to make a distinction, and, 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 I, and I've noticed this as a difference between your campaign and some of the other candidates who are running for governor in that you said, hey, I disagree with Larry Hogan. I don't think that he's the best governor for Maryland at this point in our history, and here are the reasons why. Here are my policy differences between myself and where Larry Hogan has stands and what he has done. There hasn't been this venomous personal attacks that I've seen launched at by other candidates, and mm-hmm. I just want to say that that heightens the conversation. You say, you know, I don't know Larry Hogan, and I, I just can't tell what kind of a person he is, but you're not going to engage in these drive-by, vicious, nasty, mean-style attacks because, quite frankly, people are tired of that. I know I am. I'm sure that you know in the Democratic primary, I haven't seen a whole lot of attacks between the candidates. I mean some, but um, I, I have to commend you for for keeping the conversation elevated. For I appreciate that. Well, this is where you know Michelle Obama would be the she's the one who I learned this from, right? When um, you know it's now famous, but uh, she would regularly say, "When they go low, we go high," and I just think that's the campaign I want to run. It's what voters expect from our elected office um, holders because, uh, you know, sitting in the sandbox um, and fighting gets us nowhere. Um, and for me, it's about the fact that there are too many people struggling out there, too many families um, that need help, uh, and there's just too many issues at stake at this very moment. Well, you mentioned earlier, you used the word pragmatic, and that's an important word in politics today because pragmatism has it, it, it's mm-hmm. drifted from what used to be a, a keystone of any successful politician's uh, personal what, – what they embody as a, as a politician, not only that. But, but see, being pragmatic seems today to be a dirty word, not only in Washington, maybe, but maybe in state politics. It's like, hey, it's our way or the highway, or uh, you know, we, we're not going to work with the, the other party because they just – they have all the wrong ideas. But – Politics to me is about negotiating the best deal possible with people with diverging ideas and coming up with a consensus plan that while not everyone is happy, you put forth an idea that is still going to drive the conversation forward and move policy in a forward-thinking way in the state of Maryland. You have distinguished yourself among the candidate field, and you have taken some tough positions on issues that you've said – Hey, listen, this is a great idea. In theory, I agree with it. However, it cannot be rushed. We can't push it, and it has to be incremental. And that's important because you get that – like 
yeah, you know, in progressive politics, the $15 minimum wage, I know most progressives that I've had a conversation with agree that at the statewide level, there should be a $15 minimum wage. But you have also said that that it takes some time to, to make that happen. It, it, it's not, it's not going to happen overnight, and you have to consider what does that mean for Maryland small businesses? What does the impact on the economy? How does that, how does that impact many of our small business owners? And so, Chris, in that respect, I want to talk about pragmatism in politics and your platform. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, when I talk about being a pragmatic progressive, um, it's about someone who's a doer rather than simply a talker. Um, if, if someone wants uh, the leader of a pep rally, um, then they're probably not going to be terribly excited um, by the fact that I want to just not, I want to lay out that vision, but actually get it done. Um, and so that's where, you know, I stress the fact that I have worked in law um, in business at the highest levels. I have worked in government at the highest levels. I've managed million million. Um, billion-dollar initiatives and budgets, and I have forged policies, built consensus around them, and delivered on them, and that's, to me, what folks are looking for. Um, I think part of why we uh, get hung up and not um, actually get things done is because people want to be right more than they want to actually get things done, and so for me, um, what I try to do is figure out where we can forge that consensus. Um, you know, again, as you said, uh, with pragmatics, I think sometimes um, consensus uh, or compromise um, are viewed as, as, as bad words. And that's, I think, a part of the fact that our politics have become so polarized, uh, right? I mean, this is kind of the broader set of issues of you know, gerrymandering, and, um, you know, kind of uh, campaign financing. And those are, you know, kind of a broader set of issues that I do think have really hurt um, our democracy. But if you look at the state, I mean, the why Larry Hogan won, um, we have a two-to-one Democratic state, but it's because the state is purple in the sense that, thankfully, people don't necessarily just vote on party lines. I want people to be thoughtful about who is the candidate who actually best represents the issues they care about, the values um, they, they want their elected to stand for, and the policies that they want to see get accomplished. Um, we have put forth policies um, from cradle to career when it comes to education, yeah. um, on the environment, um, on paid family leave, um, on, uh, you know, on health care. And for me, it's about listening just as much as you're talking. And I think there are some candidates in the field who are, are part of why we do have the disillusionment with um, our politicians, which is they promise the moon and the stars. And then when someone asks, well, you know, how are you going to pay for that? Uh, they get offended. <laughs> and I just think, look, um, I served in the White House at the highest levels of government. I've managed a $51.6 billion budget. So bigger than Maryland's budget. Um, I, I wish, uh, you know, uh, you could just speak pie in the sky and, and that's the way things get done. It, it, it doesn't. Um, I, I know what it takes. It's not easy. It's absolutely doable. And we can, on those range of issues, we can be leading the charge. But I don't want anyone coming in here with this false sense of um, expectation that, that any of it is, is a cakewalk. 
Yeah, Chris, when you were out talking to Marylanders all over the state, from Garrett County to uh, to Ocean City, from Deep Creek Lake to uh, Ocean Pines, um, you know, from the very far west to the very far east of our of our state. And by the way, we have the wonderful uh, uh, Maryland is so chock full of natural resources. And I know your husband is an outdoor uh, an outdoorsman as, as he is. There's so much to, to to appreciate about Maryland's climate, about what we have to offer from the mountains to the to the oceans to the bay. Um, so. I, I want to understand what it is that when you're talking to just average people and having meet and greets or out on the street or when you're door knocking, what's on their mind and how will that shape uh, a Vignaraja administration, maybe perhaps in the first year of being elected governor? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what is um, interesting is uh, my sense is that education Education and healthcare, but education, time and time comes to up as one of the biggest issues. And for me, um, it is it is at the core of this campaign because obviously it is my life story. I wouldn't have been able to have the honor of election of serving as Michelle Obama's policy director, except that I went from Woodlawn um, to the White House because of the education I got here, um, having the chance to really realize my potential, and that's what I want to make sure that every one of our children have the opportunity to have. It's why, you know, my running mate is a lifelong teacher who was the president of uh, the Baltimore Teachers Union. Mm-hmm. And you also realize that that's going to be Hogan's Achilles heel. Um, the fact that our schools have gone from first to sixth under his watch, uh, that we got a B minus on the last report card um, that assessed our school, that, you know, county to county, um, school district to district, you realize that in many ways we are talking about two Maryland, uh, you know, between the haves and the have-nots. And I just think that we need to address this issue head on. And so for me, what I have put forth is really the most comprehensive education plan um, in the field. Um, And more than that, uh, far better than what Governor Hogan has been doing, which has been taking money from public schools and putting it into private schools. Um, Many of those uh, go to kids who are already in private schools, which means we're talking about taxpayer dollars subsidizing private tuition at a time when we literally made not just national but international headlines with our children freezing in Baltimore City class- classrooms. Um, and so that's where I've been talking about investing in universal pre-K um, for three- and four-year-olds, uh, fixing the funding inequities, rebuilding our crumbling schools, making sure that we are providing hot and healthy meals for our children because the number of Maryland Kids has doubled um, in terms of those living under poverty since 1990, but also making sure we're investing in science, technology, engineering, arts, math, uh, financial literacy, civics education, because we can't just keep teaching our kids for the test. That's not how we're going to prepare them to actually get well-paying jobs, to come out and be truly productive adults, um, to be citizens, um, you know, who understand uh, how to kind of operate in, in the world. Um, and I want to make sure that when our kids come out of school, they are either career ready or college ready. Because there are some kids, and my dad, he taught uh, in the Baltimore City school system until last year when he retired at the age of 80. Um, he'd be the first to tell you that there are some number of kids who are going to come out and they are not going to go to college, and that's fine. No one should ever judge them, which means that we need to stop, stop uh, you know, stigmatizing being a plumber or an electrician or a pipe fitter those are well-paying jobs. 
my cousin's an electrician, and I just want to make sure that for the kids who want to go into those vocations, we're providing them with the technical and vocational training they need to succeed, because they will succeed with our help. But for the kids who want to go to college, I want to make sure that funding, money, is not the reason they don't. So that's why I want to provide free community college as well as make sure that we provide 1% student loans because no company should be profiteering off of student loans. Um, and so, you know, that's a good example of one of the issues uh, that we've been really focused on. But, you know, obviously there, there's a range, and I'm happy to kind of delve into them too. Sure. Uh, there's You mentioned college or career ready, and both my, my, my mother, she – uh, who also went grew up in Maryland and born and raised. Um, she she was very blessed to go to college. However, my father um, did did not go to college, and after graduating from high school, he went out into the workforce and has become very successful. And so, I I think that there has been somewhat of a stigma, a stigmata that has been attached to to people who decide that they want to instead pursue uh, a trade or a career um, versus heading off to college. I chose college um, because that's, that's, that was my, it seemed like the appropriate linear, linear pathway for me and what I wanted to accomplish. But Chris, so often in, in our culture, uh, there has been this stigma attached to people who pursue, pursue uh, something outside of college. And that's, that's unfortunate. That's, that's, I I I know that that many that that that's the way that culture has been uh, has been moving towards in the last twenty twenty five years, um, but there has been this uh, this false sense that if you don't go to college, you cannot be successful. Chris, right. I know people who um, don't have a college degree and that are are have been doing a trade for. 30 years and not only are going to be are more financially healthy than mm-hmm. I am, but will yeah, retire exactly. and can be, and, and have done amazing things in their right. lives. Have what been job creators in their communities, it, it, right? Tremendous. I mean, and this yeah. is the, this is the salt of the earth of Americans mm-hmm. who we yep. are. And yep. this, this idea that you have to go to college to be successful, I outright fundamentally reject it. And exactly. Well, and then if I can just jump in on that point, because I do think that, you know, your your father is an exemplar of what I'm talking about, because there are people who have, you know, they've got smarts, they've got savviness, they've got that, you know, um, go-getter attitude, and they get things done. And part of what I worry about is not just the stigma that I think we both have touched on now, but also the fact that government should be empowering those job creators, leaders in the community, leaders in the business community who are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing. And that's where, you know, sometimes I think we see, and when I say we, um, you know, the the Democratic Party um, is kind of what I'm going to talk to specifically, but we Mm -hmm. see these issues to, you know, the Republicans in ways that make no sense to me because if the Democratic Party is going to be the party of the working class, We've got to be the party of small businesses. And one of the issues that I've certainly seen and I hear a lot about and, and as I talk to voters across the state is why are we not empowering entrepreneurship and small business owners who are, you know, sometimes struggling. Um, sometimes, you know, they just want government to get out of the way. And that's where I want to see, and this is what I'm going to do as governor, is make Maryland the most efficient 
most predictable and least burdensome place to start a small business. And so this is where whether you are a waterman or a welder, um, whether you raise crops or capital, creating jobs and being an entrepreneur ought to be the easiest thing to do in Maryland. And I don't feel like we're there uh, right now. And I think it is hurting our economy and it is hurting our communities. It is hurting our business owners and it is hurting our competitiveness. Yes, I agree. And I think that has to be broken down. And as a leader in our state, Chris, you'll have an opportunity to break down the barriers that people associate with not going to college or, or crack at that stigma, as we discussed ad nauseum here, and, and really shatter it and say, hey, listen, as not just as politicians, but not even in the context of a political party, but in the state of Maryland, this is we're going to push these ideas to ensure that you have financial success to stay in Maryland, to raise a family, to take advantage of our great public schools, to build a business if you so choose, or to find a job in your career field and to make a, uh, a, a, a fantastic living for you and your family. That's the American dream. That's what people want. They, they, exactly. We don't want to be yeah. – you know, none of us want to be saddled with student mm-hmm. debt. None right. of us want to be – None of us want to, you know, in Montgomery County, we, you know this as well as we do, Chris, that buying a house here is not always affordable. I mean, Kim and I are, as we look to expand our family, um, (laughs) we're going to need some more space. And so we're thinking, where do we want to buy a house? And we look at, okay, this is what we take in and this is what we can afford. And it's just like, well, what do we do? Because we need a bigger house, but we're not sure if. It's in our budget, and right. we want to continue to take advantage of the fantastic schools we have here. But right. that's what the American dream is. I mean, we all just yeah. we want a house. We want to be able to make sure that our kids get a great education and to be able to retire with without having to work until we're 85 years old. That's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, this is really yeah. – you break down public service. You think, why do people want to get into public service? And I think the, the most – Common, I hear all these convoluted answers, and I said, just just break it down of what it means. And it's just like we want to make sure that we take care of our people as Americans, is on the very humanistic level. So, um, and I, I want to switch topics a bit. And you you put out a plan on April the twelfth, and it's mm-hmm. called Rebuilding Trust Through Twenty First Century Community Policing, and it's not lost on me. Chris, then I want to bring up a topic that might be uncomfortable for people. If you're sitting in a Starbucks right now, you've probably read some of the national news that about the two African-American men in downtown Philadelphia who on Thursday afternoon came into the Starbucks and sat down. One of them asked to use the restroom, but they had not purchased anything according to what was in the police report, and they were asked to leave. The police were called. And one of the African American men, or I, I believe either one or both, were um, uh, subsequently arrested, and they—it's it, become a, a, a national story. And it's just another example that we see where people are going to debate whether this was, uh, you know, a Starbucks rogue employee, was this racial profiling, or was this police officers who's, who who did all the right things and who used all the right tools in their policing toolbox but still could have used better discretion. This ties into – this is so inherently Maryland based on what has happened in the Freddie Gray situation. And relationships, as we know, with our police officers, 
it, it's become this like if you don't support police officers uh, in our country, then therefore you're a bad American. I, I think that's nuts. I think that any any person who is charged with the responsibility of executing or rather are upholding our laws to enforce our laws, we do have to question their practices to ensure that they only get better. So let's talk about – you put out a plan, a community policing plan, and I, I must admit that I'm a huge proponent of community policing. I've seen it work in, in various other places around the country. I've talked to police officers. I've had an opportunity to discuss plans like this with Chief Manger of Montgomery County Police, and it's something that – it's a plan that we know that it works, and it has to be embraced all over the state of Maryland. Let's go through your, the bullet points of this plan, Krish. What's in the plan, and what's your definition of a community of community policing? Sure. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue, and I can uh, hear the passion in your voice on this issue, um, which I share, and I appreciate uh, the contextualization of this because you realize that this is not – an issue that is um, alone in, in Baltimore, uh, but in Philly, um, and, and in, in towns and cities um, across our state, um, but obviously uh, a problem um, in America more broadly. And part of what I wanted to put forth was an alternative, because we have to cast aside the failed strategies of yesterday that unfortunately remain still today as Hogan strategies, including you know, mass incarceration, mandatory minimum, zero tolerance, um, and the war on drugs. And so what I wanted to address was certainly the piece of it um, that you, know, can call, you can call community policing, but also appreciate that issue in the broader context of how do we attack the fundamental causes of crime, meaning poverty, um, lack of educational and economic opportunity, um, public health needs, uh, the dynamic between, um, you know, law enforcement officers and, uh, you know, citizens. And so for me, community policing is not how do law enforcement officers police citizens. It's about how do law enforcement and the community come together to strengthen safety and security. And so I rolled it out this past Thursday, which was um, the third year anniversary since Freddie Gray's death. And sadly, as you noted, the relationship between police in many communities across America remain in crisis. And what I want to see is a solution. We've seen the pieces of it that have worked. Um, but what I want to see is us promote public safety, as well as the freedoms and dignity of people in all communities. And so um, my policy really focuses on uh, three parts uh, to this problem. So one part is how do we build a police, how do we build police departments comprised of officers who reflect the full diversity um, and live in the communities they serve. And so what I want to see is officers look like live in and involved with the communities um, that they are working with. And, you know, in, in um, uh, Baltimore, um, for example, you see that 40% of Baltimore's police force is African-American. Uh, less than one-fifth of it, less than 20% are women. And so we know that we're never going to build trust between police and communities if officers are not representative of 
the communities they protect. And so what I want to see is, um, you know, we work with the departments across the state to improve their outreach and hiring practices, as well as build a pipeline of talent by working with community organizations that are local, um, HBCUs, community colleges, to encourage more people of color um, and women to consider and pursue public safety careers. But part of it is also encouraging police to actually live in the communities they serve, because we see time and time again studies that have shown that reducing the physical distance between police and the communities that they serve actually reduces the likelihood for, you know, violent conflict because otherwise you do have this risk of, you know, dehumanization. And so as governor, what I will do is provide matching funds um, that will help the jurisdictions that need it to incentivize um, an increase of, you know, kind of homegrown talent that actually lives um, in the community. So that's relocation expenses, um, home buying incentives, um, you know, and sort of tuition assistance that will allow for it to be easier for officers to live in the communities they serve. Um, and I note this, the, the background um, is in, in, in Baltimore City, again, for example, uh, over 20 percent, um, well, it's just over 20 percent of Baltimore City police officers live within Baltimore City's limits, um, the city limits. And I just think that that is um, important to note. And then the other piece maybe to um, note of this part of it is how do you foster um, more uh, kind of built-in relationships? And that's why I want to provide um, bonuses to officers who engage in local community um, initiatives, like if they volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, um, you know, youth sports leagues. We have initiatives like the Baltimore City Police Department's community collaboration teams that are a good start, but we need to grow and build on that. Um, likewise, increasing the uh, walking patrols so that they're actually interacting, you know, having that human interaction with residents is uh, critically important, um, as well as police youth mentorship initiatives. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent, and you'll hear this whether you talk about my education plan or my community policing plan. Those types of mentorship programs are incredibly valuable, not just to the mentor, um, but certainly to the mentee in terms of building these positive relationships uh, between students and officers. Um, and then the other piece for me is, how do we actually address the fact that we've got to ensure that police training and tactics incorporate tools for de-escalation of violence and confrontation? Mm -hmm. And that's where I just think that, you know, training needs to stress de-escalation. Um, you know, de de -escalation. Um, we've got to uh, help provide the training, the resources, the incentives for officers to expand their skills and competencies when it comes to that. And then, you know, this is another example of this is Operation Safe Kids. Um, before Governor Hogan completely cut the program, this was a Baltimore-based program that used these high-touch interventions to divert the kids that were most at risk, um, you know, in terms of those kids who were likely to become victims or perpetrators, uh, towards better educational opportunities, um, providing them um, and their families with the kind of services and support that we know has been incredibly valuable. Um, likewise, you know, we have uh, these mobile crisis teams. Um, I, I want to see, and I will fund them um, as governor to see them expand, because when you have a mobile crisis team that pairs an officer with a social worker, when they're responding to a 911 call, for example, you know that that social worker can work with the officer, again, to de-escalate the situation, particularly um, in those situations where we have minors involved. And then the final piece of the policy really talks about 
um, how do we treat addiction as a public health crisis? Because yeah. we know whether we're talking about community policing or the criminal justice problems that we face today, that part of it is, um, or, or the opioid epidemic, part of the problem is we are not treating patients as patients. We are simply putting them into this industry of mass incarceration. And that is a failing strategy, not just at a moral level, but at a monetary level as well. Because you look at how much it costs to provide treatment, for example, right? That's five to $10,000. When you talk about how much it costs to put a person who has an addiction into jail, we're talking about, you know, $38,000. And so that's where I just think that we need to change this conversation. Yeah, right on. And as a fierce civil libertarian, from the perspective that uh, I, I agree with everything that you just talked about, these important policies, these tweaks that... Um, we know that we can bolster the relationships and with community members and police officers, especially in Baltimore City. And, um, you know, Chris, when I was I, I went down in the midst of the Freddie Gray situation during the riots. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while I, 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 I was there at the time when um, it was bordering on the the media sensationalism. I I remember bypassing Geraldo Rivera, who I wish didn't show oh, up. Because, right. So, you know, it's like anytime that Geraldo shows up, uh, <laughs> it, you know, something is going to go amiss. And, uh, but I, I, I remember being down there and talking to residents um, of that neighborhood of Sandtown and they, we, we, we talked and I, I just wanted to find out for myself, what, what is it? What is it about, um, the relationship between, um, you know, in a predominantly African American um, uh, stronghold of, of the city, you know, Baltimore City's, um, uh, you know, big place, and where this happened, it's they said it's not that we don't trust the police, it's just that the relationship has cr- crumbled over time, where they're not willing to talk with us, and we're not willing to talk with them. And we just don't have the relationship, and we want the same things for our kids, for our family members, but yeah. people are afraid to talk to police, mm-hmm. and that yeah. goes for – as well as for immigrants. And our immigrant population should not be afraid of law enforcement. They just should not be. And it's not that everybody is advocating for sanctuary status. It's, we're not talking about that. It's that, that we know that – Based on facts, based on all of the gathered data that we have our dispo- at our disposal in the state of Maryland and elsewhere, that if immigrants are fearful of law enforcement, imagine the relationships that crumble inside of these communities. It doesn't go very far. It just yeah. comes to a grind halt. So yeah. I, I applaud you for taking the lead on this, and but I think it travels back to – in any community with problems, it's education, Krish, and you have hammered education every single opportunity at your campaign stops yeah. <laughs> yeah. during these forums, and uh, that's that's what Marylanders care about because you have such broad access or broad authority over the the state of the, of education. And I will say that I'm as a parent of two, for, I am frustrated, Krish, that uh, local school districts were their control over their school calendar was taken away from them. I mean, it really should, these decisions should be made at local levels. I'm I'm a major supporter of local control, and I will tell you that 
School districts here, especially in Montgomery County, talking to the Board of Education members, they're equally as frustrated that they no longer have control over our school calendars based on what I think is the faulty uh, – this this faulty – assumption that an extra week in Ocean City is going to ultimately spur oh, more yeah. economic growth. I, just, I, I do as well. I, I think that's yeah. ridiculous. It doesn't make much sense to me. Um, yeah. So I wish, that, I wish that Governor Hogan would not have um, issued that executive order. Yeah, well, this will be one of the one of the very first things that we change um, when when I become governor because this is where I look. Um, you know, it's it, it's curious to me when I feel like there's a, a very strong Republican principle, right, of maintaining local control over these sorts of issues and not having kind of you know Big Brother uh, the governor come in, swoop in, and make a statewide decision based on one locality and, you know, economic um, gain, you know, when it comes to tourism, you, you realize that our, 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 our state is continuing to fall further and further behind. The idea that you would condense the school year, that you would throw this, um, you know, really chaos into a lot of families' schedules is the kind of out-of-touch perspective that really makes people angry um, and deeply concerned about whether politicians, you know, their electeds are actually representing them. And I just think that, you know, it's, um, it is a no brainer to me that we've got to, we've got to revert and then change his, his policy on this. Uh, As we wrap up, um, and there there will be many other opportunities in the future to have a conversation. Yeah, I hope so. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, And you're welcome to, to come on at any time. And as we move closer and closer to the the deadline um, of the June 26th primary that's etched in everybody's mind. And as you're leading up, I'm sure I'll see you on the campaign trail. But I want to invite you and your running mate back so we can have a sit-down conversation and really dive into some of the more policy issues that are pervasive around the state and what will shape you as a governor. Um, but wrapping up, I always like to ask candidates, what what is it that you want people to to know and to 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 learn about you, what do you what do you want this interview to mean to anybody who's listening? Yeah, I mean, I hope that you know while we only talked about a couple of the issues, um, what what I hope people take away is that you know, look, I, I'm I'm not in this to to run um, to be an office holder. If you look at my career, you see that um, I have been uh, not just an advocate, but um, kind of someone who has executed um, to actually get the positive policy outcomes we need for our families, for our kids. And so for me, it's about realizing what the Obamas taught me, which is that a new generation of leadership with a clear vision can change the world. And right now, in many ways, our economy, um, our educational systems, our environment are falling further and further behind. And I just think that if we can take this moment and actually build a movement around it, around the issues that we care about, there's a real opportunity for us to course correct in a way that we change the landscape forever. Um, And so what I'm fighting for is making sure that our next generation, um, all of our kids, have that chance that I had uh, coming here nearly four decades ago um, to realize um, each and every one of our American dreams, because that's 
what Maryland has always been able to deliver. And as governor, that's what I want to deliver. Well, someone who is of my generation and who has put it on the line to put their their neck out and running for public office, Krish, I know cannot be easy. And I, I certainly, it, it takes a lot of gumption and courage to step out um, of and, and cross the, the Rubicon and say, you know, I'm not going to just be an activist, but I'm going to be a player. And by once you put your name onto a ballot, it becomes real, surreal almost. And that, that takes so much courage because... And, and we are at a time in our American um, uh, political culture where politics have become to, to be defined by what people are against rather than what they're for and rather what issues can drive us forward. We're, we're so stuck on the polarization, and I'm, I'm hoping that we that eventually that will fade and people will get tired of that, and instead we'll, we'll get back to um, how we can work together, but nonetheless – Candidates who who put it all on the line, I have so much respect for them, and it takes a lot of courage to to run. And quite frankly, it takes time away from your family. And you know, I and I saw the ad of you know you and your daughter, um, and you know you're a working mom, you're somebody that you know takes your your baby daughter all over the place, and it, it and it, you're probably thinking some days on the campaign trail, man, this is this is this is quite an adventure. Um, but so. I always tell candidates, I, I I always try to say thank you, and I mean that sincerely, Chris. Thank you for running. This is uh, it, it. It's inspiring to to young women like our daughter Paige, who is eleven, and she'll be twelve Aww. in November, and That's she'll awesome. she looks at you know at at leaders like yourself and many others, and say, this is what the future of our country is for us. Not Donald Trump, not his right. um, not his White House and his cabal of people that are uh, running his his government. I mean, this is this is one of those times in American history where I believe we're going to look at and say, you know what? We we tried it. It really, really didn't work. And then we get back to the basics of of what we are and who we are as a country. Right. So, Chris, yeah. I want to thank you so much for taking a Sunday afternoon to spend with me and to talk about uh, why you're running for governor of Maryland and what you hope to accomplish. And you are welcome back on any time. And before I go, I always try to have candidates plug where they can be found uh, in person and on the the interwebs. Sure. No, I appreciate that opportunity because what has been heartening is that we have won debate after debate, um, straw poll after straw poll. And I think part of it is that as People are slowly starting to tune into the race, which is great. Uh, when people hear our message, it resonates. And that's why I do think that we are feeling and being a part of this groundswell of su- support, um, which is, is really exciting. So to learn more, um, you can just go to www.krishformaryland.com. So that's with a K, K-R-I-S-H. Um, so krishformaryland.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Krish for MD. So that's K R I S H F O R M D. And then on um, Facebook, where we're on Facebook and Instagram um, as well. But really, I'd love to hear from folks out there. Um, we have uh, hundreds of volunteers across the state. And so um, this campaign hinges on uh, us taking advantage of this moment to really build a movement. And we hope you will join us in that. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and my best to 
to Alana and to, to Colin and to everybody else who's working hard to get you elected. So once again, Chris, thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation, and there will be plenty more in the future. And so uh, with that, um, I'll get you go back to your day, and I hope that uh, I hope that we'll see each other soon. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Ryan. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Chris. Okay. And Bye, have a great everyone. Week. Bye. Okay, that was Krishante Vignaraja on a minor detail radio. Have a good week, everybody.